I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We'll be reading together verses 11 through 32. And before we uh, read God's Word, it's important that we go to Him in prayer. And as we pray to the Lord, asking for His blessing upon our study of His Word, that's not a formality that we just go through, sort of to check off the list to say that, that we've done what we're supposed to do. But as we go to the Lord in prayer, we're acknowledging our need for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. We're confessing our own limitations, and we're admitting our rebellion to the Lord, that by nature, we fight against the authority of God's Word. And yet, by His grace, we recognize that we need such authority in our lives, for we are dependent creatures. We are needy sinners. And in that, we need the work of the Holy Spirit to help us. To help us not only this day, but to help us any time we study God's Word. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your authoritative, divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of truth that You have given to us in Your kindness and mercy. We thank You that in Your good providence, You have preserved for us the integrity of Your Word that as we read it this day, we know that it is a Word of life to us. Help us, O Holy Spirit, to give attention to this Word, uh, that we as Your people uh, might grow in conviction, uh, in repentance, in faith, uh, in newness of life. In the name of Christ and for His sake we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. 
and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, as you've spent time on your own reading through the Gospels, you know that one of Jesus' favorite methods of teaching is the parable. At first, we might think that Jesus taught in parables in order to make things that are complex more clear. Perhaps the parables are there to help those who are listening grow in their understanding of lofty truths about the gospel and about human nature. After all, parables are stories. And stories are vivid. They are memorable. Perhaps they cause us to think more deeply, more extensively about what's being taught. And to a degree, this is true. But of course, the parables are not always easy to understand, are they? There's much, much more that is there that Jesus is teaching behind the initial story. And as much as we like the story, we also know that when Jesus taught in parables, there was a lot of confusion on the part of those who were there listening to him. Even up into our own time, people misconstrue all the time the things that Jesus says. They portray him as just a moral teacher rather than one who is the eternal Son of God. At one point, after Jesus finishes teaching in parables, his disciples come to him and they ask this very question. Lord, why do you speak in parables? And perhaps what's behind that question is simply, Jesus, why not just tell us what we're supposed to believe? Why not just tell us what to think? Tell us what to do. Speak in a straightforward manner. We don't understand these parables. And so as the disciples ask that to Jesus, why do you speak in parables? He answers them. In Mark chapter 4, he says, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, this seems like an extremely odd thing for Jesus to say, doesn't it? What does he mean by this? It almost seems as though he's saying that he speaks in parables because he wants to make people confused. And the disciples are probably thinking, well, you succeeded there, Jesus. (laughs) Well, listen to how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, Jesus used parables so that those who thought they could see might be blinded, and those who were conscious they were blind might be able to see. The mission of Jesus is to seek and to save those who are lost. It is to offer healing to those who are sick. It is to give sight to to those who are blind. But of course, the precondition to all of this is to see yourself as lost, as sick, as blind. And so you will never understand the parables unless you first see your condition for what it truly is. You see, in the end, it really doesn't matter how you think of yourself. You could think of yourself as very moral and obedient 
a law-abiding citizen, one who was loving and kind and benevolent, merciful and patient. But until you see yourself as broken, blind, needy, and helpless, until you see yourself as the Lord himself sees you, you will never be able to see. And so parables are ultimately meant to help us understand the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The parables are all about exposing our hearts so that we would see ourselves accurately and see what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And so may our prayer be this morning, Lord, help me to see with clarity. Now, as we consider this parable from Luke 15, it's important to keep the context of the parable in mind. That is, who is Jesus' original audience? Who is it that he is speaking to? And we see that back in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, these teachers of the law, do not like those who are being included in the kingdom of God. They don't like the people that Jesus is spending time with. They don't like the ones that he so freely welcomes into his presence. And so in response to their grumbling and in response to their judgmental hearts, Jesus then tells a series of parables here in Luke 15 about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And all of these parables are meant to point to the gracious, loving pursuit of God toward lost sinners so that the hearts of those who are listening would be exposed, to bring about conviction, so that those who have eyes to see would see more clearly, and those who have ears to hear would hear more deeply, while those who are blind and deaf, those who fail to see their need of grace, will continue to reject his words of life. And God's word always acts as this dividing line. It is a savor of life unto life, and a savor of death unto death. So let's look at this parable, considering in turn each of the three main characters of the parable. First, the younger son. Now to the teachers of the law, to those who are listening to Jesus and watching him embrace all of these wayward people, the younger son is sort of the epitome of everything that is wrong with those type of people. We have no problem looking at the younger son and seeing his wickedness. He comes to his father and he asks for his portion of the inheritance. Now, in this culture, the estate would not have been divided equally among the two sons. A larger portion would have been given to the older of the two, but since there were only two of them, the younger son's portion still would have been fairly substantial, roughly one-third of the estate. Now, when we're talking about this share of the property that the younger son is asking for, We're obviously not talking here about him asking his father to cash in his life insurance policy. He's not asking him to liquidate his 401k or cash in his CD early. But he's asking about the property in terms of land. That would have been the only thing of real value for Jesus' listeners. And it's the family estate that would have have been the most significant piece of, of ownership for the children of Israel. Because it was the land itself that was a redemptive promise given to their forefathers from the Lord God himself. 
It was this land that was evidence of God's love and faithfulness to his people. It was the land that pointed to the fact that they are his covenant people and he is their faithful covenant God. And so to ask for his portion of the land is to treat this gift of the Lord as a simple, disposable commodity. Now, furthermore, the estate would not have been divided among the sons until the death of the father. And so what the younger son is basically asking for is just that, the death of his father. To ask for his inheritance while the father is still alive is to essentially have no regard for him at all. The younger son is basically saying, I cannot wait for the benefits that are rightfully mine. I've waited long enough. You're not dying soon enough for me. I want to enjoy life now while I am still young. Now, we don't have to travel to the ancient Near Eastern culture to know that this is an extremely offensive request. And it's not even a request. Notice again verse 12. It's more of a demand. Give me, give me what is rightfully mine. So it's not only the content of what he says, but the way in which he says it makes this the most selfish, hateful, arrogant thing that the son could say to his father. Anyone who's sitting there listening to Jesus, whether it's these Pharisees, these scribes, the disciples, anyone else who is listening would have expected the father to strike the son. In fact, to grab his staff and to rain down blows upon this wicked son and drive him from the family. It would be expected of the father that he would disown a son who would dare to make such a disrespectful demand. And we'll come back to the father's response in a moment, but notice what the younger son really wants. He wants all of the benefits that he thinks he deserves without a relationship with the one who gives him those things. He sees the father as more of an oppressive authoritarian rather than as one who loves him. And he wants to live his life the way he wants to live, free from authority. He so longs for this independence that he wants his inheritance now so that he can sustain a life of self-indulgence. He cares only for himself. He doesn't care about the impact that this request has upon his father, his brother, or even the community in which he lives. He wants to enjoy life without any restraints. And here's where I think that this younger son is a picture of our own rebellious state as we follow in the footsteps of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. He wants no obligations. He wants to submit to no one. He wants to gratify his desires with no thought of the consequences. And so the younger son takes possession of his portion of the land, he immediately sells it, and then uses that money to indulge his desires in reckless living. And now in the next scene, beginning in verse 14, we read that he spends everything. The inheritance is gone. He has no way to sustain this lifestyle any longer. And to make matters worse, a famine hits the land. Now someone has observed that a lone Jew in a far country without money or friends, would have been especially vulnerable in a great famine. And so of all of those who were in need, you can just imagine the scene here. If there's a famine in the land, if you have anything, you're going to share with your family first, then your friends, then your neighbors, and then if there's anything left, 
that stranger, that alien who's in the land from far away. And so he's probably more in need than anyone else around him. And he becomes so desperate that he joins himself to someone from that land and takes this extremely low position, a position that no one in that land would have wanted in tending pigs, a position that would have been an unclean position for one who was of Hebrew descent. And his condition gets even worse to the point that he longs to eat the pig's food, which is probably some shrubs with a few berries on it, something that would have been edible but not enough to sustain life. And so he's barely living, and he is driven to an absolute end of himself. We then read in verse 17 that there is a sort of awakening in the younger son as he comes to himself and he begins to make this journey home. And we'll come back to this part of the parable in a bit, but let's jump ahead and look at the reaction of the elder son upon the return of his brother. As we skip down to verse 25, we find the older son out in the field. And what is he doing in the field but fulfilling his responsibilities as the firstborn? So on the one hand, you have the wild, reckless, rebellious son. And on the other, you have the good son. He's the diligent one. He is the one who is out working. He is the one who is out doing the things that are expected of him. He is the faithful one, doing the right things. While the worthless brother is out living it up, he remained behind, laboring dutifully all the years of his life. He's not the one who asked his father to be dead and then took off in wild living. Instead, he is the one who works day in and day out, sacrificing for his father. And then as he comes in from a hard day's work in the field, he is suspicious of the sounds of celebration that he hears coming from the household. And when he finds out what's going on, notice how he reacts in verse 28. He is filled with anger and he refuses to go into the celebration. As far as the father is concerned, this is the greatest day of his life. The son who disowned him, the son whom he thought was dead, has returned And he invites the entire village to come and to celebrate with him. Now, we might have celebrations today when a child graduates from high school, when a couple gets married and we all gather together and we hire caterers to provide delicious food for us. But back then, meat was an extremely expensive delicacy. The fattened calf would have been saved only for the most special of occasions. And here the father takes that fattened calf that has been saved for just an occasion as this, And he invites the entire village to come and to feast with him and to celebrate. Clearly, the father is filled with joy and excitement as everyone around is invited to participate. And everyone is there except the elder brother. Now, we know that he refuses to come in because he is angry. But what is it that's behind his anger? Well, he is filled with self-righteousness. He is filled with pride. He is filled with jealousy. His younger brother left, making life difficult on the entire family. And now he's back, and he's just let in as though nothing ever happened at all. Are you kidding me? I'm the one who has remained faithful. I'm the one who has stuck around, putting in year after year of service to you. And I've never even asked so much as a small goat be given so that I and my friends could celebrate. And here, this son of yours, you may have welcomed him back, but he's no brother of mine. And you treat him like he's royalty. 
after all he's done to you, after all he's done to me, can't you at least make him suffer for a little bit? At least make him feel the consequences of his actions. And let's be honest here. You can really empathize with the elder brother, can't you? We all know someone who's just like the younger son. A family member who is living a sexually immoral lifestyle. A co-worker who was fired for having pornography on his computer. An acquaintance who was unfaithful to his wife or to her husband. And we think of people like that, and what do we do? We put them on a completely different plane than ourselves. They're in a completely different category than I am. After all, we're the faithful ones, aren't we? We're the ones who are sacrificing a, a beautiful Florida summer to come here and worship on a Sunday morning. We read our Bibles with our children. We are the ones who have been faithful month after month, year after year. If someone like that repented, well, they better experience some serious consequences for their behavior. I think we're much more like the elder brother than we might like to think. And what irritates the elder brother and what irritates us as we are like him is the nature of grace. The younger brother doesn't deserve the kindness he is receiving, and the elder brother, he just wants justice. Well, he doesn't want justice for everyone. He just wants justice for his younger brother. And he doesn't see that he is just as much in need of grace as his younger brother. And you see, the two sons are really very similar. And sure, you have the morally indulgent one and you have the morally respectable one. But behind them both is a simple desire to live for the self. They both look at their father and they see him as restrictive. They both see themselves as servants more than children, and they look at their father as an authority figure alone, not a loving father who wants to have a relationship of intimacy with them. And just as the younger son brought shame upon his father through his rebellion, the older son's refusal to honor his father and come and celebrate with him is just as shameful. They are both using the father to get what they want. They're just going about it differently. Just as the younger brother wanted the benefits of the family without the family so that he could have independence and immediate gratification, so the older brother wants what is due to him without a relationship with the father. He just has a more long-term perspective. He's just more respectable in the way that he's going about his moral obedience. He sees the father as a taskmaster who is driving him to perform. He does not see his father as one who loves him and longs to have a relationship with him. And how many people view God just like this? He can change my circumstances in a moment if he's like, but he chooses not to, and therefore he's oppressive. He's detached. He's cold. There is no love for the father. The older son just wants some kind of reward for being the faithful one who stuck around. And this is why our context of Luke 15 is so important here. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the ones whom Jesus is addressing, they are the elder brothers because they don't think they have a problem. They are filled with pride. They look to their own performance, and they have this attitude that they are superior to others and that God owes them an easy life. You see, the problem with the religious leaders is they fail to see their need for grace. And what is it that keeps them from seeing their need for grace? Well, it's their own pride, their own sense of morality. They are healthy. 
They have no need of a doctor. They are not lost. They do not need to be found. See, we could call grace the ultimate equalizer because no matter where you think you are on that spectrum of morality, all that is required of us, all that is demanded of us is that we put our faith in Christ. And who can do this? Well, anyone can do this. If it's all faith, if it's all of grace, then anyone can do this. Grace levels the playing field. One of my favorite narratives from the Old Testament is in 2 Kings chapter 5. You remember there the story of Naaman, who was this commander of the Syrian army, a great man and highly favored, but he has leprosy. And his slave girl, who's a slave girl from Israel, longs and wishes that her master would go to the prophet of the Lord to find healing. And so Naaman, in order to show his worth and to show his value, he gathers together some 750 pounds of silver, roughly 150 pounds of gold, beautiful sets of clothing, and a letter, notarized letter from the king, stating how important and how valuable he is to the king himself. So Naaman comes riding up with his horses and his chariots to the small house of Elisha the prophet. And Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to him, but sends his servant out to Naaman to tell him, go to the Jordan River, dip yourselves in it seven times, and you will be clean. Well, Naaman is furious. Who does he think I am? Where is the great feats of strength? Why this dirty little river and not the beautiful rivers of my own land? Anyone can go and dip himself in the Jordan River, and I am not just anyone. But his servants plead with Naaman to lay aside his pride. And as he does what the word of the Lord tells him to, and he goes down to the Jordan River, and he dips himself, the text tells us in 2 Kings chapter 5, that not only is he healed physically from his condition, but he is clean This is the gospel. Humble yourself. See your need. Lay aside your pride and your self-righteousness. And any notion that there is something that you have done or are doing or can ever do that sets you apart from anyone else and acknowledge that you need grace just as much as anyone else. Pride is the only thing that keeps anyone from the gospel. Pride says, I have done for him and now, what, he, what is he going to do for me? Pride says, I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as far gone as her. You see, the elder brother, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're really in bondage. There's no freedom in God's grace. There is no joy in the Lord. There is no delight in seeing the repentance of another. And what about for you? Is the Christian faith a burden or is it a delight? Are you easily angered, filled with pride, gossip and belittling of others? Maybe you don't even say those things, but you think them in your heart. Or is there joy in the Lord? Is there joy and delight in the things that bring joy and delight to the Heavenly Father? Or do you think real joy is being admired for being a holy, moral person? Is real joy for you simply being acknowledged as one who is better than others? Is your joy hinged upon what others think of you? Is real joy being patted on the back for your faithfulness? Or is true joy rejoicing 
Not only that you have been a recipient of grace, but rejoicing when lost sinners turn to the Lord in repentance, for it is the Lord alone who receives the glory. So what can restore these wayward sons to the Father? Well, the answer for both of the sons is the lavish love of the Father. It's the extravagant nature of the gospel. Go back to the father's relationship with the younger son. Notice that when the son comes to his father and asks for his inheritance, as shameful as that request or that demand was, the father gives it to the son, not endorsing his behavior, not putting a stamp of approval on that wild, indulgent lifestyle, but really keeping the door open for his potential return in the future. And when the son begins to come to himself, as we read in verse 17, it's not quite true repentance. It seems there still as though his focus is upon preserving his life. He's certainly humbling himself, presuming that by becoming a hired servant, it might be possible for him to begin to make restitution to his father. As he returns, he braces himself for that judgment that he knows he deserves, not only from his father, but no doubt from his elder brother and from the community as well. Now, up to this point, I think there's still some notion of repentance of man going on in his mind as a work that he uh, musters within himself, something that he can do to make reparations. But instead, when he returns, something happens to him that he would have never anticipated. Notice that as the father sees him, he sees him from a far distance. And what sort of father would see his son from a great distance, but one who has been looking for him? One who has been watching and longing and hoping that one day his son would return. And think about what an amazing display of love and forgiveness it is on the part of the father. When he sees his son off in the distance, he takes his robes and tucks them between his legs and takes off running toward his son. Now this is not the kind of man that you would see jogging by your breakfast window in the morning you would have never seen something like this. This would have been absolutely shocking to see a patriarch run at full speed in the way in which he did, undignified, even humiliating for him to run toward his son, but he doesn't care what anyone else might think of him. He is overwhelmed with joy, and he embraces his son, and he kisses him in an act of restoration. You see, on his long journey home, The son is reciting this speech that he is going to give to his father. He knows he's going to receive the shame and humiliation from the village. But instead, what do we see? We see the father taking the shame and humiliation upon himself. We see substitutionary grace as the father protects his son from the hostility of the village and immediately restores him to fellowship. He is reconciled. He is forgiven. The son is willing to work to pay back what he owes, but the father's overwhelming act of love shows the son that it has never been about property. It's never been about money. It's never been about trying to make restitution. It's all been about this severed relationship that only the father can heal. John Calvin says the father meets him when he is coming and before he has heard a word, embraces him. Filthy, disgusting, ugly as he is, so God does not wait for a long prayer 
but of his own free will, meets the sinner as soon as he proposed to confess his faults. Now, the critical point here for us to note is that it is not repentance that creates the Father's love, but it is the Father's love that enables the Son to repent. It is the love of the Father that draws you toward repentance. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. And so when you are filled with anger or bitterness, when you find yourself having sort of a judgmental and arrogant spirit toward other people, well, what do you need to do? But meditate upon the kindness of the Lord. Choose to fill your mind and heart with the truth of the Lord's mercy toward you, with His kindness toward you. And as you dwell upon those things, repentance follows. You see, it's not the Father who changes. The Father has always loved the Son. The love of the Father toward His children is immutable. It is unchangeable. And it's that love toward the Son that leads the Son to repentance. It's not our God who changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping His love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin. This is the God who is. And this is always who He has been. And this is always who He will be. And so the thing that causes the sun to wake up, the thing that causes the sun to really wake up is that he changes, you see, based upon the reality of the Father's love and grace towards him. And the thing that brings lasting change into our own life, the thing that brings true repentance is waking up to the reality of who God is and who I am and who is God but the holy and righteous and merciful, all-knowing, infinite, immovable, unchangeable, just, and true one. And so every time we gather and we study God's Word together, every time you read His Word on your own and you learn more about the nature of the Lord, don't ever let that be a cognitive exercise that you go through where you just store up more knowledge about who the Lord is and His character and His nature. But allow the truths of who He is to change the way that you live your life. What does He call me to do in my life in response to who He is in His nature? And who am I but poor in spirit, longing for approval and looking everywhere else for that, but can only find it in the Lord himself, in need of what the Reformers called an alien righteousness, that is a righteousness that comes from outside of myself, doomed without grace, in need of repentance. Unless you see yourself as the younger son in this parable, you have yet to see yourself at all. This is the gospel, powerful enough to save anyone, deep enough to cover anything, full enough that it requires nothing of you but to receive it and to acknowledge that you need it. And notice the father is the same way with the elder brother. It's the same level of grace that is pleading with him to receive grace that's offered to him. The father, we read, entreats the elder son. That is, he implores him to come and to rejoice in the love of his Father. And it's a calling that goes out to all of us to come and to receive the grace that is offered. And the younger son responds in repentance toward grace and mercy that is shown to him 
But how does the elder brother respond to the grace of the father? We don't find out in the parable, do we? Notice at the end of the parable, Jesus doesn't finish the story. He doesn't tell us what the elder brother did in response to the love and kindness that has been shown to him. Jesus leaves the conclusion hanging because he's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to the elder brothers who would presume more righteousness and integrity and morality than the outcast and the one who is really in need of grace. It's obvious that the younger brother needs such mercy. He can't repay his father because he threw it all away. He can't heal all of the wounds that he's brought into his relationship with the father. But you see, unless you see yourself as the elder son, you have yet to see yourself clearly. Well, how can this be? How can I be both the younger son and the elder son at the same time? Well, on the one hand, I am self-indulgent. I am proud and I am angry. I oftentimes want the benefits of having a relationship with the Lord, but I don't want the intrusion of the Lord into every aspect of my life. I don't want him to rule my checkbook. I don't want him to rule my mouth. I don't want him to rule my heart. I don't want him to rule my relationships. On the other hand, I am judgmental, and I am filled with self-righteousness. I view myself as more mature, as more righteous, and in less need than the hard-hearted one. No one ever discovers the nature of God's grace without first discovering the reason he or she needs it. And don't you see how masterful this parable is? No matter who you are, it exposes your heart. And it shows you that you need grace. And really, you see, what the father does in this parable is he points us to the third son. There's the younger son, there's the elder son, and there's the eternal son of God who is telling this parable. We can't leave him out or we'll miss the meaning of the parable. See, all of the shame and all of the humiliation that the father would have experienced through both of his sons in the parable, which is just a story, is shame and humiliation that in a true sense has been taken by Christ himself upon the cross. He is the one who bore the cost of our sin and our rebellion that we might receive restoration and forgiveness. He is the one who, through costly grace and great humiliation, provides the way for us to be welcomed home. So when you come and when you say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son, before another word is out of your mouth, he embraces you. And then you realize that he has done more than pardon you. He has done more than make you righteous, but he has made you an eternal son or daughter of the living king. And there is nothing that you can do anyway. There is no way that such a debt of offense can ever be repaid. And before you even begin to think that there is something that you can do to repay him for what he has done, he cuts you off from any notion of performance. He clothes you in his robes of righteousness. He places the sandals of peace and sonship upon your feet. He gives you the signet ring of access to that throne of grace. The Father has not changed. He has always been a generous father. What the son has learned through the intruding grace of the love of his father, what he has learned is the difference between give me what I deserve and 
treat me as one who is completely unworthy? And which is your attitude as you go to the Lord in prayer? Is it give me, for you are convinced that you are deserving? Or is it treat me according to your grace and your mercy? Treat me as you will, for I am unworthy, I am rebellious, I am hateful, I am deser- I'm deserving of nothing. And just as Jesus left the conclusion open to the scribes and to the Pharisees in order to press them to consider their own hearts, the parable presses you to consider your own heart before the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to take the eternal truth of His Word and to write it upon our hearts.